Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. My guest today is a household name to virtually everyone who follows politics closely, and that is Dave Wasserman, senior editor of The Cook Report with Amy Walter, specializing in house races. He's also a contributor to NBC News, including on their election decision desk since 2008. From an early age, Dave seemed to know exactly what he wanted to do, to think and write professionally about politics, and he's made it happen at the highest levels. In this conversation, we talk Dave's path to working in politics, how he thinks about races and what goes into his analysis, and he provides insight into this cycle's redistricting process and his current read on the 2022 House playing field. Dave Wasserman, tell me a bit how you grew up. Well, first of all, Thanks, Zach, for having me. Uh, I respect the hell out of your work as a pollster and big fan of the podcast. So it's an honor to be with you. Well, I grew up in central New Jersey in South Brunswick and Montgomery townships, and my parents were both PhDs in food science. My dad taught at Rutgers and my mom was a dietitian. I'll be honest, it, it was a little bit of a traumatic upbringing. My dad, a couple months before I was born, actually was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of 31. For the first five years of my life, I wasn't really sure that he was going to live. That was pretty scary. I, I suspect that had it not been for that diagnosis, I wouldn't be an only child and might not have some of the problems that come with being an only child. But he had two bone marrow transplants when I was two and when I was four. And so spent quite a bit of those years around hospitals in both Seattle and New York. You know, miraculously, he went into remission and survived another nine years. So I got to know him. He was pretty healthy at my bar mitzvah. And then it came back, took a turn for the worse, unfortunately. He passed away when I was 13. Growing up, he really nurtured my love of maps. I fell in love with the geography before I fell in love with politics. Far back as I can remember, anytime I saw a map, I was just drawn to it. I would ask him to drive me around so I could make drawings of where the streets went. And in first grade, I remember drawing street maps by hand to pass out to my teachers because this was before GPS. And I thought, well, how are they going to figure out how to get to school? One of my favorite teachers was Mrs. Barkley in first grade. She was a MAP recipient. Many years later, in fact, this was like two years ago, my mom remembered that she had this recipe for cranberry bread that she made. And, and my mom was, was wondering if uh, I had kept it. And I was like, well, no, but I wonder if I could track down Mrs. Barkley on Facebook. I did. And I sent her a little message saying like, you probably don't remember me, but my mom wants this recipe from you. Well, she sends me a message back after a couple of weeks. And the very first image she sent back was of the map that I'd given her. Teachers never forget. Then one summer when I was 11, for a couple of weeks, there was this glitch in the cable TV system. And we only got two channels. We got QVC and C-SPAN. And I was kind of bored watching items for sale on QVC. And then I switched over to C-SPAN and I found the floor debate in the house to be oddly engrossing. I've always been a compulsive list maker. And so I started making a list of every member that I'd see speaking on the floor of the house along with their party, their state. So my goal was to try and glimpse each of the 435. Eventually I had a pretty good list. I was curious who these people were, what their districts were like, 
what their elections were like. And so I went to the, I started going to the library, reading the Almanac of American Politics, and I couldn't check out reference books, but I could sit there and read them. And there wasn't really any competition for these books. <laughs> so just read every edition that I could get my hands on. And I also discovered this show when our cable was working again called Inside Politics on CNN. And I would race home from school in time to catch Judy Woodruff and Bernard Shaw talking about the latest races and issues of the day. Sometimes they'd have on these two funny guys named Charlie Cook and Stu Rothenberg, and they were the Siskel and Ebert of elections. And they'd go back and forth and predict who was going to win these races. And I thought to myself, how cool would it be to be those handicappers one day? A couple of years after that, I emailed Stu Rothenberg because I was a fan of his columns and roll call. I asked if he had any internships available, and he, he said that they were a very small shop, and regrettably they didn't, but he gave me some good advice going forward. For my 13th birthday, I remember asking my parents for a subscription to the Cook Political Report for my birthday. My mom, I believe, called up Charlie's office and found out how much it was to subscribe. My parents refused and they got me a subscription to Governing Magazine instead, which had very little to do with the, you know, the actual races for Congress. And so I was sorely disappointed by that. I think it was pretty soon after that that I quit violin lessons because they conflicted with election nights. Uh, I just had to be there to watch the results coming in. I remember that this obsession with politics, it was pretty lonely, to be honest. I think the 1990s were a bit of a different era because politics just wasn't all consuming. 2000 debate between Bush and Gore was basically about a social security lockbox, right? Uh, it didn't feel as existential as it did now. And, you know, kids at school weren't really talking so much about it. I think the other factor was that there wasn't Twitter. It was harder to find other people my age who were into this stuff. It kind of made me a little bit of an outcast, but at the same time, it was a point of pride that I was really into this stuff. And I started volunteering on local campaigns in our township. Before I knew it, you know, I was like kind of the chief strategist for a couple of people who were running for township committee because there was really no one else willing to do that. And I ran to be the student member of our township's board of education. One of the people on the board of education at the time was a Princeton economics professor by the name of Ben Bernanke. So I like to say that I was I was on the board with, uh, with Ben Bernanke. When it came time to figure out where I wanted to go to college, I had seen Larry Sabato on TV talking about elections. And I thought, well, how cool would it be to go to UVA and take his classes? So I kind of made that my mission. I still remember going down and touring UVA, besides being awestruck by how pretty it was. I sat in on one of his Politics 101 classes. I remember very nervously introducing myself to him at the end of class. Hi, my name's David. I'm a high school student from New Jersey, and it would be a dream of mine to study under you. He said, well, you'll soon find out if it's a dream or a nightmare. But that's how I, I ended up going there. Let me ask a little bit more about growing up in New Jersey. What you've described is gravitating to federal politics and watching cable news and CNN. Were there New Jersey politicians, personalities that made an impression on you? Oh, yeah. You know, New Jersey really is a unique political culture. It kind of embraces a very different breed and I think has a higher tolerance for creative ethics, shall we say, than, than other states. One of the people I've become friends with over the course of his career is James Carville. And despite his roots in Louisiana, one of his most brilliant campaign moves was in New Jersey, working on the, the Senate race between Frank Lautenberg and another candidate, uh, a Republican, who had moved into the state from elsewhere and uh, ran an ad saying, my family and I, we, we chose New Jersey as our home because 
it's such a great place to live and and the people are wonderful and carville came up with this ad basically saying he's full of shit. p yeah, dawkins being dawkins, the republican right. candidate right that's just kind of new jersey politics in a nutshell but the race that really drew me into congressional politics was in 1998 in our district, uh, New Jersey 12, there was this long shot race that this Princeton plasma physicist named Rush Holt was running against the incumbent Republican Congressman named Mike Pappas. And our district, historically a pretty Republican suburban country club kind of district. The township where I went to high school, Montgomery Township, it voted for George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004. I think it went for Joe Biden by something like 40 points this last go around. Back in 1998, it was still in this transition phase. Mike Pappas had taken to the floor of the house to sing kind of a riff on Twinkle Twinkle Little Star where he was praising Kenneth Starr during the investigation into Bill Clinton and impeachment saga. Rush Holt ran this series of mailers parroting Pappas and saying he was out of tune and out of touch. And it was just a great message that resonated with voters who were fed up with impeachment. And that kind of became the Democrats' argument late in the 1998 cycle. And on election night, I remember that early on, the Republican Mike Pappas was declared the winner. And no one expected Rush Holt to win. The network covering the race, NJN, discovered that they had accidentally flipped the vote totals in Mercer County. In fact, Rush Holt, the Democrat, had come out on top by something like 5,000 votes. And it was the upset of the cycle. I think most of the handicappers had that race and likely Republican. It was a great introduction into House races and anything can happen in politics. And there's a clip of a very young, but also very sober Dave Wasserman appearing on a New Jersey public affairs program. I must have been as a teenager, right? How do you find yourself making what I assume had to be your first TV hit? You know, it's totally crazy. So I had written into this website called politicsnj.com when I was, I believe, 15. At the time, this was at the vanguard of all these gossipy state political websites, but whoever was running it. He had a pseudonym. He wouldn't reveal himself. He was the best sourced guy about everything going on in every corner of the state. No one knew who it was. Yet he offered me a weekly column on his site as kind of a teenage political perspective. It became a point counterpoint with this other kid from Bergen County, New Jersey. We got invited onto this local program. That was really cool. I think the coolest thing about that gig was that the beat reporter for politicsnj.com at the time was this guy named Steve Kornacki. <laughs> Looking back on it, it's kind of fun. And actually, it turns out the whisperer running that site was a guy named David Wildstein, who now runs the New Jersey Globe. Got into the news with the Bridgegate scandal a bit, but probably knows more about New Jersey politics than anyone. And you talked about your intersection with, with Larry Sabato going to UVA. Can you talk a little bit more about the role he played in your life, what you learned from Larry Sabato? I'm just beyond lucky to have found these mentors. But Larry Sabato really was my entree into this business. Throughout college, I was kind of torn between would I go the campaign route or would I try and go into the journalistic or analysis route? And I just didn't think there were many jobs in political analysis. But when I first got to UVA, really intimidated. Sabato 
is all over TV and the most quoted politics professor in the land, right? Yet I went to his 2002 crystal ball presentation. But before every election, he would pack a big hall at UVA, Sabato's crystal ball election picks presentation. He would unveil who he thought was going to win. I was a first year freshman in 2002. I show up at this thing. I asked him during the question period, if you could pick one bellwether house race that will tell us early on on election night what's going to happen, what would it be? And he said, Indiana's 7th district, which at the time was Julia Carson, he said, I'll bet anyone 10 bucks that race is going to be a barn burner. Afterwards, I went down to the well of, of the hall and I said, uh, Mr. Sabato, I'll take that bet. I don't think it's going to be particularly close. I think Carson's going to win by more than five points. And Sabato hands me a $10 bill and he says, well, David, you're on your honor to return this to me when you're wrong. And Julia Carson ended up winning by nine. I actually sent him the $10 bill back in the mail and I said, you know, I feel bad taking this from you, but I just, you know, want you to know I, I'm looking forward to taking your courses. He emailed me back and he offered me a job, essentially an internship at his Center for Politics writing about house races. And so that's what I did at UVA for the next four years. During that time, I did take some time to work on some campaigns. I took a semester off to, to do a race out in South Dakota. I won't tell you who I was working for, but you can probably look up the FEC records. And that was a really formative experience for me because you know, for a kid who grew up in the Jersey suburbs to be working in West River, South Dakota on a really competitive race, going to ranches rodeos, powwows, Indian reservations. It was really quite different from anything I had ever experienced, kind of jokingly called it uh, my study abroad. And I came back and it was kind of time to figure out what am I going to do after graduating? There was this fork in the road. Mr. Sabato convinced me to stay on and work at his Center for Politics. The summer before that, I had lucked into an internship. The way that I got it was kind of a funny story. When I was a second year in college, I applied for Sabato's upper level seminar on campaigns and elections, which was known as a very tough class to get into. I decided just to go above and beyond to try and prove how interested I was in this class to do a study, a data analysis to attach to my application that was based on a column that Charlie Cook had written in National Journal Magazine, where he hypothesized that if you lived closer to a Walmart you were more likely to vote for Republicans. And if you lived closer to a Starbucks, you were more likely to vote for Democrats. And so I mapped out every Starbucks and Walmart in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I lined them up with voting precincts to determine whether there was any correlation. And of course, there was some correlation. So I turned this into Sabato. He takes me aside after the first class and he says, listen, Dave, I can't let you do this class right now. I've got grad students applying for it. I've got fourth years who want to take it. But I did take a look at your study and I passed it along to my good friend, Charlie Cook, and he's very interested in talking to you about it. Over the course of corresponding with Charlie Cook, ended up getting an internship, and that was really cool before my final year of college. I stayed on to work for Sabato for a year. That was the 2006 election cycle, and so it was kind of a front row seat to the George Allen-Jim Webb race. True brawl that ended up deciding control of the Senate. I got a call from Charlie Cook in 2007, uh, Amy Walter. You know, I had revered as well, was going to be leaving to be editor-in-chief of the hotline. And he was curious if I was interested in, in coming up to DC and covering the house for the Cook Report. And I was intimidated out of my mind. It really took me a while to feel comfortable in that role because I was 22 when I started. In that first cycle or two, as a professional analyst, are there things you look back on, lessons you learned that have stayed with you? It's become very different, both the field and kind of my 
career over the last 15 years I've done this. I would say I probably brought more of a quant perspective to the Cook Political Report than others before me, just because that's the only way I could go about it in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I didn't have access to the same kinds of sources and candidates that did all of a sudden when I got to DC. My philosophy has always been to never be too heavy into the quant or qualitative side of political analysis, that they have to be balanced somehow. You can be up to your neck in spreadsheets, build every kind of statistical model for elections. But if you're not talking to candidates or strategists or pollsters or media consultants, you're going to miss a whole lot that's important about analyzing races that is unquantifiable. But if you're only talking to the candidates and pollsters and dealing in kind of the gossip of these races, but you're not looking at the long-term trends or demographic data in these districts, you're also going to miss half the picture. My philosophy has always been to try and balance those as best as I can. Of course, we don't always get it right, but it is a, a mix of art and science. I do subscribe to the way that we categorize races. It was Charlie who came up with the rubric of solid dem, likely dem, lean, toss-up. There are some cases where it is a real close call between two of those columns. And we start wishing we had nine columns instead of seven, and then we'd wish we'd had 11 columns. But I don't love the idea of putting an exact percentage odds on who's going to win because we can't ever really be that precise. And what is your prep for an election night? I mean, maybe going a bit more into the science part of the equation, maybe a special election where you have the time to focus on a race in, in more detail than you can when you have 435 house races all happening at once. But what is your prep for a Georgia Senate runoff or a, a hot house special election? How are you developing your spreadsheets and your targets of what you expect a candidate to be getting in a county or even maybe at the precinct level? Where are those numbers coming from? What is the prep that goes into that? Yeah, uh, I do feel sometimes like a bit of a fraud when people bill me as some statistical guru, because uh, I'll be honest, I took one stats class at UVA and I think I got a B. But what I what I, I think I do all right is trying to distill political data into something that's digestible to the average reader or the average political junkie, but then also build a reasonable model of how to track a race on election night based on patterns that are unique to certain parts of districts or states. I kind of had always been building election models in Excel growing up, but the first race where I took that public was in 2010 between Scott Brown and Martha Coakley and that special election in Massachusetts. And the most predictive indicator of how a certain town is going to vote is how it's voted before. Adjusting the share that each candidate might get based on past presidential gubernatorial results to set a benchmark of what each candidate would need to break 50% plus one in a statewide or district-wide race. Knowing the, the strengths and weaknesses of the candidates and their profiles in certain parts of those districts can pick a couple of races to build that model on. And then once you make a, a certain turnout estimate, plug those numbers into it, you can build a, a reasonable model. What I did on that election night on Twitter was I, you know, I started saying, I believe that Scott Brown needs 
51% in this town, but he's getting 53. And all of a sudden it started taking off. The patterns of these races on election night are typically pretty consistent. What I found over the last 10 years or so, there was a lot of false suspense about races on election night. In the totals, the candidates may have been running close together, but based on the patterns, if you really had something to compare the results to at a granular level, it was pretty obvious from an early stage on election night who was going to come out on top. And give me a race or two uh, in those first cycles when you're getting things under your belt. What's a race or two that you felt like you had a bead on early in the cycle, uh, even if some of your colleagues or other people in your line weren't seeing you can take some pride in, feel like you had figured out early and were ultimately proven right on election day? In 2012, the race in California 36 between uh, Raul Ruiz and Mary Bono Mack, who was the incumbent at the time, that's a seat where the demographics of the district were moving just so fast, clear surge, potential Obama voters. We, I think, had that race rated more competitively than, than some people might have assumed given the past performance of that district. And so I was proud of that one. More recently, you know, I would say in the 2021 Virginia governor's race, there was pretty good historical reason to believe that Glenn Youngkin had a strong chance to win based on the typical swing from a Democrat winning the White House to the next year in the Virginia gubernatorial election. You know, I, I was in Virginia in 2009 when Bob McDonald didn't just win a state that Obama had carried by six points a year before, but he won it by 17 points, which was a 23 point swing. And yeah, Joe Biden won Virginia by 10 in 2020. That didn't mean that Democrats and Terry McAuliffe were a lock to hold on to the governor's mansion in 2021. I remember a lot of people saying, yeah, right. Of course, Joe Biden's honeymoon didn't last as long as Terry McAuliffe needed it to, and that race flipped. And what's a race or two in the other direction then where you maybe found yourself most surprised by a result? Yeah, so there was a, a special election for the for Louisiana's 2nd District, I believe it was in 2008, after Bill Jefferson was indicted and then convicted. And no one, including myself, thought that a Republican could possibly win this district. But the fact that it was a standalone election allowed a Republican named Joseph Gao to steal this seat that typically would vote for Democratic presidential candidates by 40 points. You typically never look at a D plus 26 district in PVI or whatever it was and say, this is a seat that could flip, but it did. And it just goes to show that you have to have your ear really close to the ground to pick up on some of the peculiarities, the local peculiarities that can tilt a race unexpectedly. You know, I'll be honest, I don't think it's possible to truly have a pulse on 435 districts at once. We're going to be surprised every now and again. And I think both the 2014 Eric Cantor upset and the 2018 Joe Crowley upset, pretty hard to see in advance. And I can look back pick reasons why we should have paid closer attention to those contests. You know, at least in the case of Joe Crowley, I looked at the results in the presidential primary on the Democratic side and the gubernatorial primaries, and it seemed like it was still a pretty pro-establishment district in Democratic primaries. But just because there's a prior pattern doesn't mean it, it can't be broken. What would surprise the Dave Wasserman most of 2007 about how house races work now, some of the trends that we've seen in the interim? Clearly, the decline in split ticket voting, we have much more straight ticket voting than, than we did. 
the trading range of competitive races has narrowed not only because of self-sorting and redistricting, but also because a 53-47 district is just a more durable advantage than it would have been 10 or 20 years ago because voters aren't crossing over. I attribute a lot of that to the decline in local news and local media. When I was first covering these races in 2008 cycle, you had candidates who were really able to defy the partisanship of their districts, who were still doing quite well because they were adept at getting their names out in local news in their districts. Um, Travis Childers in Mississippi or, or Don Cashew in, in Baton Rouge were all candidates who- Chris Shays on Chris the Republican Shays, right. side. You know, even recently, John Katko, who's, who's now retiring. Part of the reason why Katko has thrived in a pretty democratic district in Syracuse is that He's got a small media market, not that hard for him to raise a chunk of change and build up his, his own reputation as independent from his party in that district. That's much harder to do in, let's say, a district in the Houston suburbs or in L.A. Races have become much more primary oriented than they were. Also, we're seeing much more of an advantage for wealthy candidates in both parties, especially on the Republican side, were those who have friends or family who can set up super PACs, which is a really distinct development from when I started this job. And for years, you've been part of election night broadcast at NBC. What goes on behind the scenes at a network on election night? I mean, I, I picture you being involved in help, helping determine when to actually call a race. So if someone was a fly on the wall in those moments, what's going on? What does that look like? We're trying to track the numbers coming in as closely as we can, um, of course, from official sources. At the House level, there's typically a bit less pressure than there might be at the Senate or presidential level, because what we're trying to do is come up with an overall seat estimate of where the parties are going to end up at the end of the night. I build a model that has a, a decimal point next to every district in the country of how likely it is on a scale of zero to one to be won by the Democrat or Republican. And as election night chugs along, we update that and it builds an overall estimate of where the parties are, are going to end up. I actually prefer to be behind the scenes on election night and off Twitter. I don't think it's possible to try and crunch that many races and accurately convey what's going on to viewers at the same time. Kind of two different jobs, two different skill sets, and really does take, I think, a large team to do election night well. To some extent, a fog of war can surround a major election night where there's just so much going on, it's, it's difficult to track at once. So you have to be on your toes. I, of course, do enjoy tracking races on Twitter on election nights that aren't the really, really big ones. I remember sometime back in 2013 or 2014, I wanted to clear what I was doing with the network that I've been working for and make sure that I, you know, I wasn't stepping on any toes. And I said, you know, is it okay if I give updates of how I view races turning out on election night? Someone who has been a, a mentor at NBC essentially said, look, I'm, I'm cool with it. I understand what you do and, and what the Cook Report does, just as long as you don't use the word projection, uh, because I think that could confuse some people. I said, I, th I think that's totally fair. I'll figure out a different way to say it. I can't pinpoint exactly which election it was, but I started seeing the results coming in and people were kind of saying, well, this race is really, really close, but the benchmark model I had suggested that it was really over, even though maybe only 20 or 25% of precincts were reporting. And I, I said, look, guys, I've, I've seen enough. This race is done. 
it wasn't intentional, but people started asking me, well, have you seen enough on this race? Have you seen enough on that race? And it kind of took off and became its own zeitgeist. And it was accidental. As that became, took on a life of its own and became part of the conversation, is there some celebrity who utilized that phrase that you had to blink really hard to make sure you were looking at it right, who actually threw your your language back at you? <laughs> it's wild how far that phrase has gone. Um, there are like Premier League broadcasters who sometimes I'll be looking through my, my mentions. Someone will say, to paraphrase a U.S. political pundit, I've seen enough in this match or whatever. And I, you know, that's pretty cool. I had the opportunity to talk to Charlie Cook on this podcast, and he talked in depth about the origins of the political analysis handicapping industry as we know it today and how the Cook Report started. I'd encourage people to find that show in the archives. But Dave, from your experience at the Cook Report, uh, now the Cook Report with Amy Walter, can you demystify just a bit what the average work week looks like, taking COVID out of the equation, but what is the average work week like for you as a senior editor? Yeah, you know, it really has changed a lot over 15 years. And I would say when I first came into this role, I was interviewing maybe a dozen congressional candidates a week who were coming through our offices. It was basically a revolving door, Democrats and Republicans. And one of the distinguishing aspects of the Cook Report or our friends over at Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez, which used to be the Rothenberg Political Report, we try and size up the candidates on a really personal level. And when a candidate walks into our office and is trying to convince us that they're going to win the race, my goal isn't really to interrogate them so much as it is to estimate whether they're cut from the cloth of the district they're trying to represent, whether they're going to play well, they've got the team and the game plan in place to get over the finish line, whether they have a compelling case for the voters. Over the last 15 years, I'd estimate that I've met probably somewhere between seven and 800 congressional candidates. Now, that pace slowed a little bit, I would say, as candidates have become less reliant on PAC money and support. It used to be that their PAC fundraiser would bring them by our offices as part of the grand tour of DC they were doing to raise money. Over time, I think more congressional candidates have been more reliant on small dollars or their own money. Most of the interviews that we do, either we originate or the congressional campaign committees initiate to get us to sit down across the table from some of the candidates they think have the best chance of flipping seats. I would say that my time as an editor is probably spent a third researching what's going on in the most competitive races, whether that's meeting with candidates or, or talking with pollsters such as yourself or other strategists. A third of it is spent writing about these races, and a third of it is spent either answering media calls from reporters who want a quote that puts a race they're covering in context, or giving briefings uh, and, and presentations to interested groups. And that's an increasingly important part of our business model. And I can't talk to you in a redistricting year and not, not dig into your thoughts on that front. Uh, first of all, in college, I believe you wrote sort of an award-winning piece on the history of congressional redistricting. Your, your Twitter handle is the word redistrict. So why is that part of the political process so captured your interest? Well, redistricting is kind of the, the marriage of my, my two passions, which is geography and politics. And nowadays, there is so much out there on election Twitter, it's, it's hard to wrap my arms around. And I'm thrilled to see it. Had 
kind of the election Twitter sphere existed back when I was growing up, I would have probably not been able to get any schoolwork done. J. Miles Coleman and others are kind of at the vanguard of this, but there are more people who are doing great map making work and redistricting analysis than I can possibly name. For me, I was always curious whether there was a better way to do this. So in college, I made it into a thesis, essentially. Try and estimate if we had certain criteria in place, would it still be possible to satisfy the Voting Rights Act? Would it be possible to draw districts that were fairer? What I did with some very crude software back in 2005, came up with a set of criteria that was driven by existing county and municipal boundaries. I called it minimum split districting and tried to estimate what the partisan outcome and the racial outcome of, of that would be if it were applied to the entire country. I put this together into a paper and that became something that furthered by interest in it. In, in 2011, at the Cook Report, I, I wrote a 50 state guidebook to the process that was pretty popular with our subscribers. Then in 2018, one of my proudest collaborations with the website 538 was the Atlas of Redistricting. It took seven different approaches to redistricting and applied them to the entire country to estimate what would happen. I remember I pretty much locked myself in my office for six months to try and draw 2,568 districts by hand, able to get it done. And it made a good splash. I think it's still a useful reference for election junkies out there. And of course, this cycle has been like drinking from a fire hose. Personally, I'm very glad that the census data was delayed. We had our first child back in May, and I don't think I could have handled redistricting and the first few months of parenthood at the same time. When redistricting got underway in earnest uh, last fall, I still had some stamina to be able to, to cover it. And you and I are talking in late uh, March 2022, almost all of the states are finished, or at least are far enough along. Analysts like yourself know what we're dealing with, maybe a, a handful of, of states that are a little bit more up in the air. But at this point, how has redistricting shaken out You know, the overall landscape to what you were expecting uh, six to nine months ago as the process was just starting? Yeah. So, you know, at the outset, I, th I thought there was a range of outcomes from, you know, Republicans picking up five seats from redistricting to maybe Democrats picking up a handful of seats. And Democrats have caught most of the breaks and are on track to, to net a few seats from redistricting. Of course, I still see Republicans as the favorites for House control because of the political environment. Three things have happened to give Democrats uh, a, a better outcome here. First off, Democrats have been able to gerrymander the states that they control pretty aggressively. New York is the biggest one. Illinois, a close second. New York's a state where the courts drew the map 10 years ago. And so there really was an opportunity for Democrats to, to up their score there. Illinois, a state that Democrats arguably dummy-mandered in 2011, they got to redraw the lines there to, to bolster themselves. Oregon, New Mexico, to a lesser extent, Maryland. Uh, whereas Republicans, they already had so much power over the process in 2011, it was hard for them to squeeze out more seats in the states that they controlled. So Texas, obviously a massive redistricting prize, 38 seats, but Republicans had already gerrymandered the state. They're really only going to be able to squeeze out two more seats from Texas. And then the second factor is commission states. Democrats got the maps that they wanted in California, New Jersey, and to a lesser extent, Michigan. In California, I expected that at least a couple Democratic incumbents were going to have harder races as a result of citizen commissions shaking up the map. 
Instead, pretty much every Democratic incumbent got a great district, but there are still at least four Republicans who are going to have very tough races in 2022. Uh, and then the third factor is the courts. And I've been arguing from the outset that state Supreme Courts are going to be more important than ever before, because neither Congress nor the U.S. Supreme Court ha have done anything to put up guardrails against the worst excesses of partisan gerrymandering. So state courts understood their role as kind of the last backstop against the practice. And Democrats, to their credit, they were able to lay the groundwork for this redistricting round by winning key judicial races in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Ohio over the last six to eight years. Had it not been for state Supreme Court decisions to overturn maps in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, um, federal decisions in, in Virginia in the last couple cycles, the Nancy Pelosi would not be speaker today. And we're seeing that trend continuing in this redistricting round. The fact that courts in Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina, able to overturn Republican maps because essentially they're partisan bodies. It's possible you'll see the same thing happen in Ohio. That's a big seat shift over what the Republican maps would have portended for, for those districts. So you add it all up. I think Democrats are on track to lose three to five seats fewer if that makes sense, than they would have without these new lines. In terms of the median House seat or how many House seats you think are Biden House seats versus Trump House seats, is it late enough in the process you have some working estimates of, of what we're likely to be looking at in terms of that 218th House seat? Yeah. One way you can think about it is the difference between the median House seat and the national outcome in presidential races. It's hard to get much more skewed towards Republicans than the maps were in 2016 when you know, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.1%, but the median district in the country went for Donald Trump by about three points. So that was a five-point gap between the median House seat, the 218th seat, and the national outcome. There was still a bit of a gap in 2020 when Joe Biden won the popular vote by 4.4 nationally, but the median House seat, Lauren Underwood's district in Illinois, only went for Biden by, I believe, 2.1. So that was a much smaller difference, but still a Republican bias. Part of this is the way that maps were drawn. Part of it is, is that Democrats still are at a, at a small geographic disadvantage from a lot of their voters being clustered in overwhelmingly blue precincts that are harder to spread out under compact districting plans. But then in this cycle, when you guess at what the final lines are going to be in the last five states that are outstanding, I would say that the median seat will be pretty close to the national outcome from the 2020 election. So there's going to be very little skew towards one party or the other in the final house maps, but these will be much less competitive maps than the previous ones. And this is a long-term trend, but just to give you an idea, there were 51 districts in 2020 that voted within five points for either Biden or Trump. I expect that number to be in the low 30s this time. Within the states where Republicans had enough control to, to push through a favorable map. Is there a state that you feel like is a microcosm of some of the missed opportunities that Republicans had this cycle? Yeah, you know, Republicans have passed on the maximally aggressive map in a couple different states this time. They, they could have taken an ax to Indiana's first district in, <clears throat> in northwest Indiana and didn't. They could have tried to tear apart John Yarmouth's seat in Louisville, Kentucky. They did take apart Jim Cooper's seat in Tennessee. Some other states where you know Republicans could have could have gone for more. Missouri looks like it's on the verge of 
passing a plan that will preserve the 6-2 Republican advantage, even though they could have taken apart Emanuel Cleaver's district. So Republicans had some considerations besides trying to win a massive majority. Some of their own incumbents didn't want to take on more Democratic voters. The reverse was true in Maryland, where Democrats could have rather easily drawn an 8 nothing map in Maryland, but for a variety of parochial reasons decided to leave Andy Harris, the only Republican in the delegation, with a chance at winning re-election there is really a province of state capitals. Oftentimes when party leadership in DC has one preference, they kind of run up against the, the bruised egos of state leaders who say, you know, we still matter and this is still up to us. Another example of that would be, you know, in New York state, Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of the DCCC, along with Mark Elias, who's by far most prominent redistricting lawyer, they were publicly pushing for a map that would have confined Republicans to just three of 26 seats in the state. But there were several upstate New York incumbents, including Brian Higgins, Joe Morelli, and Paul Tonko, who had all served in the assembly in Albany. They all had deep ties at Albany. They, they didn't want to see big changes to their districts, so Democrats settled for a 22 to 4 map instead. For those who aren't lawyers who don't follow the various rulings and case law, what new ground has been broken over the last several months? What are the implications of that moving forward? Redistricting law is never steady state, right? It's always shifting depending on the latest interpretations of the VRA, interpretations of what's permissible under state constitutions as well. Democrats were successful along with some reform groups in passing state-based reforms in places like Ohio and Michigan, Colorado, and, and even New York to try and curb gerrymandering. Because gerrymandering is difficult to, to quantify or come up with an agreed-upon definition for how much is too far, courts are struggling with this. At the Supreme Court level, there are kind of two fronts here. One is to what extent do state courts or governors have the power to rebuke what a state legislature wants? There are three Supreme Court justices who have indicated they're already have embraced this independent state legislature theory, which is a fringe idea in legal circles that constitution should be interpreted very literally to mean that only state legislatures should be able to set the rules and the maps of our, our elections. You know, although I'm skeptical that the full court would embrace that, that would basically lock in Republicans' ability, perpetuate their own uh, power, because a number of these state legislatures are gerrymandered in and of themselves and gives give Republicans uh, an inflated advantage. The other front that we're watching at the Supreme Court level is on the VRA. Earlier in the cycle, there was a bit of a, a surprise ruling out of Alabama, a three-judge federal panel that included two Trump appointees that blocked Alabama's Republican map from taking effect because they said there should be a second black majority district. It's possible to draw one in a state that's two-sevenths black. Uh, two of the seven districts ought to give uh, black voters the opportunity to elect a candidate of choice. That looked like it was a breakthrough for civil rights groups, for voting rights groups, and yet Yet the Supreme Court said, you know what, we can't let this take effect. We're going to hear the, the full case. I would bet that um, that they side in the end with the Alabama legislature, which drew only one black majority seat. The real surprise came in the past week when the Supreme Court overturned Wisconsin's legislative maps, which uh, had been embraced by a conservative swing vote on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. 
all because it created a, an additional black majority seat. The court found that uh, that was likely an Im impermissible use of, of race in the redistricting process. So it's possible that the Supreme Court could take a big swing at Section 2 of the VRA just a decade after uh, rendering inoperative uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So high stakes. Beyond redistricting, how are you thinking about the House playing field? Yeah, you know, Republicans aren't going to have a year like 2010 when they picked up 63 House seats because they're starting at a much higher point. They managed to flip 13 Democratic seats in 2020, and they're just five seats away from the majority. We also, after redistricting, have far fewer competitive seats. So a swing in the national environment that would have led to maybe a 50-seat gain two decades ago might only lead to a 25-seat gain today. Now, still, that would be more than enough for Republicans to, to take the majority. If you're looking at the races that will decide control, it's going to be places where Joe Biden won a district by a point or two. Democrats like Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan or, or Dan Kildee in Michigan or Abigail Spanberger or Elaine Luria in Virginia. These single digit Biden districts where the president's approval rating is now underwater. Then you also have a whole slew of races. These are Biden plus 10 seats that are in our likely Democrat column. Democrats ordinarily would win with no problems, but given the climate, these races could get interesting and Democrats might have to spend more money and effort uh, trying to you know, prevent a catastrophe. You know, we're watching Rhode Island's second district. We're in Henry, Henry Cuellar's district in South Texas. California's 13th district in the Central Valley, which is an open seat after Josh Harder moved north. Even Peter DeFazio's seat in uh, Southwest Oregon. Democrats shored that seat up, but Republicans have a pretty formidable candidate in Alex Scarlatos. Democrats have a competitive primary. Deeper Republicans push into that range. Um, that will determine the size of their gain. And it feels like it's more pronounced on the Republican side, but maybe that's just my bias. But can you speak to changes within the respective parties' caucuses as older, often more pragmatic members are replaced by those coming onto the scene who've been forged in the more polarized uh, Trump era, in irrespective of which party is in control? Are we seeing big changes within the party caucuses? I've now been at this job long enough to see that that we can see changes in individual members over time, right? You know, someone who comes in as a real hothead in one of these wave elections, you know, a number of them end up being rather thoughtful legislators down the road after they've gained enough committee experience and really understand how Congress works. That can be cool to see because people do gain knowledge and maturity on the job. And that in and of itself can change the complexion or uh, ideological willpower of a caucus over time. I think there's this kind of misconception about the Democratic caucus that it's moved left over the years because so much of the, the social media on the left is dominated by a few voices who have risen to prominence, of course, the squad after 2018. And that has become a useful stereotype of the party for Republicans. You know, Certainly in the 2020 elections, a number of, of successful Republican candidates in, in House races were running against not Joe Biden, but the squad. On the Republican side, there's no doubt that with the amount of turnover we've seen the last few years, this exodus of the traditionalists in the Republican conference, people throwing their hands up at Trump or losing primaries, not seeking reelection for other reasons, 
the biggest factor the last few years in Republican primaries has been loyalty to Trump. And it's very hard to win a Republican primary without echoing the themes that made him successful in both the Republican primaries and the general election in 16. And yet we may be seeing an ebb in that trend this time, not only because this is the first election cycle where, where Trump hasn't had a Twitter account, but also the isolationism that Trump embraced or amplified on the Republican side, that's, that's kind of gone out of fashion as Russia and Ukraine have come into focus. And so we are seeing some Trump skeptics in Republican primaries that are actually doing quite well or holding their own. And it's going to be really interesting in some of these member versus member races like Rodney Davis versus Mary Miller in Illinois or David McKinley versus Alex Mooney in West Virginia, you know, in Michigan to see whether Peter Meyer uh, or maybe Fred Upton, if he decides to run, can get past their primaries. And even in Texas, in the first primary of the season, Louis Gohmert's district nominated on the Republican side a fairly mainstream county executive named Nathaniel Moran. The Ted Cruz endorsed candidate in the 8th district, uh, Christian Collins, lost to the, the more mainstream Republican there, uh, Morgan Luttrell. So Kevin McCarthy publicly is still embracing Trump, holding fundraisers against Liz Cheney and the like. But privately, he does not want as many noisemakers or rabble rousers in the MTG and Lauren Boebert crowd uh, because that detracts from his overall mission. In many ways, it seems like you have the ideal job of the, that you would have wanted the kid who was pestering your mom to get you a Charlie Cook subscription in high school. What are other professional goals you have? What are other things on the list you'd like to sink your teeth into? You know, it's crazy. I, I thought in college, maybe I would get to do this kind of thing eventually. I never thought that I would I would get to work for, for the Cook Political Report at 22 and that I'd already you know be there for 15 years by the time I was 37. Obviously, this has been a dream come true for me. And, uh, you know, this is it's pretty rare that someone gets to live out their their passion professionally. It doesn't feel the need to bounce around uh, to different jobs. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of turnover in the press corps in D.C., and I feel ex extraordinarily fortunate that loved what I've done, haven't felt the need to move. But there are um, different experiences that have been rewarding over the years. One that comes to mind in 2019, I got the chance to, to teach a seminar at the U Chicago Institute of Politics. I always wanted to give back what I could to students and teach them a little bit about uh, how we go about political analysis and what it means to build a uh, an analytical toolbox. And that was just a really, really cool experience to get to, uh, to to be there in person. I'm fortunate that I got to do it before the pandemic. There were a lot of eager and interested students who were willing to show up for no credit for two hours on a Monday afternoon and talk about maps and redistricting and, and numbers. Down the road, I, I don't know what the future holds, to be honest, but I have kind of rediscovered a passion for music. Even though I quit violin lessons when I was 12 or 13, I took up the, the fiddle a couple of years ago and been playing more bluegrass or, or Irish. And I go around to, uh, to some jam sessions near where we live in Alexandria. I've really enjoyed that. And so it's kind of a, a side passion that keeps me sane when politics gets gets a little bit too intense. What advice did you find yourself giving to young people, the, the person who follows you on Twitter, who reads your stuff, 
who thinks that maybe they want sort of a job uh, like you have? What what job advice, your career advice, big or small, did you find yourself giving to those who uh, had an itch to be the next Dave Wasserman? What I always tell students is try and go deeper than going broad, uh, if that makes sense. I think has been a, a move towards more niche journalism where if you can really own a subject and be the go-to expert or person who who knows what's going on in that area there will be rewards for that the other thing i would i would say for people who are coming up in in this field of political analysis there are a lot of people who come at this from a really partisan perspective that's the nature of things is you know how you get involved in politics is typically through working on a campaign or developing pretty clear views on on the political issues of the day it's become harder and harder to find people who are coming up who can detach themselves from their own political views. I do think that is necessary to build long-term credibility in the field. I certainly came from a campaign background. My mentors, Larry Sabato, Charlie Cook, Amy Walter, they all worked on campaigns. So it's not disqualifying, but at the same time, there is a a level of detachment that's necessary to uh, build a credibility bank. You know, another piece of advice I'd give to people who want to get into this field, it's okay to be relentless. In fact, I encourage you to contact as many people you admire who are working in politics as you possibly can. At the same time, do it in a kind way. I was an obnoxious, overeager kid who, when I was looking for an internship, I emailed probably 30 different political professionals, including analysts and pollsters. And believe it or not, Charlie Cook was the one person who got back to me and said, you know what? Yeah, you can hang out in our office this summer. And it ended up, of course, leading to to something really great. When you contact political people and you're looking for career opportunities, make sure to ask them how they got into it. People in politics, they, they they like to talk about themselves. More of them than you realize would be happy to have you over to their office for half an hour to talk about how they got into it. And they may not have an opening time you're inquiring. If they get a good impression of you, they can sense that you've got a strong work ethic and a strong interest in the field. There's going to be a time when they do have an opening and they're going to think of you. Don't lose the faith that you can get into this business, no matter what kind of shape it takes on. Let's in on a recommendation, Dave, but what's something, a book, a TV show, a movie, a a product, a recipe, something you found yourself getting into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? (laughs) For me, I think it's been enormously helpful to, to have a lot of friends, to have a wife who are not immersed in politics. And I, you know, I know everyone's different and it may work for some people, but at the end of of a day, I really relish being able to talk about something else totally different from what I've been immersed in that day. My wife and I watch a lot of really trashy reality TV. And one of the shows actually my, my mom got us into All Creatures Great and Small on PBS Masterpiece. It's kind of a period piece from the 1930s, but we both love it. Well, Dave, this was great. It's always good when we connect. Thanks for talking through your experiences and and letting me pick your brain on what's going on now, certainly on the redistricting front and more. Always good to connect. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time today. Hey, thanks so much, Zach, and and keep up the great work. I'm uh, a loyal fan. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. 
please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.